The cost of the cross this morning, we are going to be examining the crucifixion of Christ. And we're going to look up close, move verse by verse through these things. I thought maybe we would go farther than this, but as I sat in these verses, I thought, you know, let's just focus in now on these moments. And what I want to encourage you to do is try your best to put your feet on the ground, in the dirt, there in Jerusalem, to hear the sounds, to feel what you may have felt as a follower of Jesus, as one of his disciples. What, what would this day have been like to experience, to watch this unfold? Begin with verse 26. I see this as a, an unexpected assignment, an unexpected assignment. As they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and they laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there's a lot that can be learned just from this short little bit. One, we understand that Jesus has already been flogged. He's been awake for a long time. He has been the recipient of many, many punches while blindfolded. He is bloodied and bruised. He is... uh, He is experiencing what would have come from all the suffering of the damage done to his back with the whipping and the scourging. Uh, Bits of glass and bone wrapped in the cords of the whip, nine tails over and over, not just slashing, but ripping. And oh, the pain of that is enough to kill many. But Jesus is holding up by God's sustaining grace, and he's carrying himself, but the idea that he could carry his cross very far at all is out of the question. There's no way he could do it. The cross beam of the cross is what they would have probably placed on Jesus. It would have been a heavy load, and it would have been tied, and uh, maybe he made it a ways, but not very far. And it became clear that they needed help. And so as this, this procession moves through the city, from where the trial took place out to Golgotha outside of the city walls. There's a man who is coming in from the country. He he is not in the mix. He he is just a a passerby. He's coming in. He's there for Passover. He's traveled from a long way away. In fact, let me show you where Cyrene is. Uh, It's uh, quite a ways from Jerusalem. This is down where Cyrene, uh, the ancient uh, city of Cyrene was which is basically modern-day Libya, okay? We're, we're in North Africa. Uh, Simon has traveled with what seems to be a large contingent of, uh, of, of faithful Jews from Cyrene all the way up to Jerusalem. And so here he is, he comes in, and immediately he's given an assignment by the Romans. This is not optional. This is you take the cross and carry it as Jesus makes his way up. Why me? What did I do? Why did you choose me? What, what's the deal here? It seems random, doesn't it? This man just randomly chosen by these Romans? Friends, there is no random in this. This is the high point of redemption. This has been planned by God from the beginning. Every detail counts. Simon is chosen, it seems, by the Romans randomly, but no, he is chosen by the grace of God, sovereignly appointed for this task. He's chosen to participate in the humiliation of Jesus. 
He is there carrying the cross of a man who's been condemned to die. He doesn't know this man. Here he is. He's carrying his crossbeam. He is uh, now in the mix with all of the, the, the scorn and the, the mocking participating with Jesus. It's interesting, though, because this image is purposeful. God has ordained this image. In fact, Jesus has already taught multiple times about this scene right here. Listen to these verses. If the world hates you, believers, know that it has hated me before it hated you. You carry my name, you're going to be hated. And then he says this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Those are familiar verses. We've studied those up close. And now we have the scene unfolding before us. Here is Simon, literally um, kind of the, the premonition of what it looks like to walk out a life of faith in Jesus Christ, to carry your cross daily. It means that you join Jesus in the ridicule and the scorn. You join Him in His sufferings. You humble yourself as He humbled Himself, and you walk the road, if need be, all the way to your death. He calls for nothing less. Total commitment. And Simon of Cyrene had no choice in the matter, and so he carries the cross for Jesus. What's amazing about this is that you find out both in the Gospel of Mark, who names Simon's sons, Alexander and Rufus, and then later in Romans 16, when Paul refers to Rufus as one of the believers who has radically helped from the city of Rome. So what happens in this exchange is not random. This man has been chosen, and the events that unfold culminate in his salvation. What an amazing way to be saved. Imagine this man's story. Imagine his witness as he returns to uh, Cyrene. And then the work of evangelism that took place as a church was established there. And then his sons somehow end up in Rome in, in the work there. What an amazing thing. God is at work in all of these things and they seem random. There's no randomness with God. He chose to save Simon as he was assigned by the Romans to carry the cross of another. Now, in the middle of this exchange, there's, there's this long journey, kind of the, uh, the, the Via Della Rosa, the way that Jesus walked as he carried his cross, and Simon's there carrying the crossbeam, and Jesus is working his way up with ridicule and probably whipping along the way, keeping him moving. There's an exchange that takes place that only Luke records. This is an interesting exchange, and there's, uh, there's some things to gain from it here. Listen, there followed him a great number, uh, a multitude of people and women who were mourning and lamenting for him. And so you'll see, even today in Jerusalem, they'll reenact this. They'll have someone who carries a cross, and then a large crowd walk behind him. One of the things we know about the culture in this day is that there were professional mourners. This is part of very Jewish instinct and culture. So if someone is dying or about to die, people would gather and grieve. And it was not a quiet kind of grief. It was a wailing and a loud noise. And so commentators and, and, and scholars believe that there's a mixture here. 
of those who are just truly brokenhearted, those who are uh, feeling the weight of what is coming. What? What do we make of this? How can this be? He's the Messiah. Why? There's no going back now. He's going to be crucified. But I think in the mix, there were others, maybe more instinctual professional mourners who were just joining in and, and making noise and wailing. Jesus responds with some very interesting words. Now, these would have been words woven in with sweat and drops of blood and labored breathing. And you've got to feel the, 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 the way that he spoke these words. Turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that have never bore and the breasts that have never nursed. And they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. Now, do you expect to hear that from a man who is laboring up to leave the city and be crucified? Is that the words that you would ever expect to hear from someone in his position? Listen, don't cry for me. Weep for yourselves. There's going to come a day when those who are barren are blessed and those who want to die will be crying, just end it already. Rocks fall on me. Mountains cover me. Can't endure this anymore. It's how bad it's going to be. And then he finishes with this. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? You ever tried to burn green wood in a fire? It's not easy. It doesn't burn fast. It's hard. It simmers. There's water in there. It's slow. But you contrast that with extremely dry wood. Wham! It goes up in a hurry. Big fire. That's what he's saying. You think this is bad? What they're doing to me? I'm the green wood. Just you wait. 70 A.D. is coming. He's predicted this over and over. Repent. Turn. If you, you, you think you have a reason to wail now, just you wait until the wood is dry. Titus comes in 70 A.D. and he absolutely destroys the city in judgment. The suffering is great. Judgment is coming. Now, the words of Jesus here are words of love. Friends, we live in a culture where warning is viewed as hatred many times. These are words of love. This is a gift He gives of warning. Judgment is coming. Beware. Turn. Repent before it's too late. Hmm. Now, an astonishing prayer. Jesus continues to make His way through the city up to the hill where he would be crucified. Verse 32, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And I was just struck with the words led away. They were also led away. So it seems that maybe they were participants in this procession of some sort, maybe behind him farther back, uh, two criminals. Now, the other gospels will use the word robber or thieves. And just remember, this is Rome. They don't They don't just crucify. This is the extreme 
punishment. They, they don't just crucify petty thievery. These men were battle-hardened thieves. They had done some terrible things. And they had done enough in their robbing and thieving to warrant crucifixion on the Sabbath day, or on the Passover day. And so here they are. There's a total of three. Jesus is numbered among the criminals. Prophecy fulfilled. Okay? That's so important. It's in view. He is sinless. They are not. When they came to the place of the skull, that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Now, when you see that, what comes to mind? Who's going to be on your right, Jesus? Who's going to be on your left, Jesus? Think of all of the arguments that the disciples have had repeatedly. Well, I deserve to be on his right because I'm better than you and I, I've proven myself more worthy. And, and, and Luke uses these words, I think, to, trick, to trip our memory. Just go back. Remember all of that? Who wants to be there now? The way of Jesus is the way of sacrifice. It is the way of certain death for many at least for the disciples, for the apostles. One on his right and one on his left. He's in the middle, the sinless Savior. The place called the school, there's debate about which location it took place. And when we're in Jerusalem, we, we go to both places. Um, I think it's, uh, it's likely that the city walls were in a, a little tighter area. And, and so the, uh, what's the name of that church? I always forget. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre is, is likely the uh, closer location than up on the, the hill where the garden tomb is. Um, but there is uh, an interesting cave-like feature that looks like a skull. And uh, the way, uh, highway that would lead through uh, Jerusalem was right there. And uh, Rome always crucified people for uh, a reminder, basically, we're in charge. And so the crucifixions would take place in, in full view right near the road where everybody would have to pass by and see people suffering and dying and be reminded of Roman uh, incredible, just, just firm authority and brutal, brutal control. Crucifixion is a terrible thing. Uh, it is widely agreed it's the most painful way to die ever invented. It is the death that Jesus took. And, and don't miss this. God could have planned to send His Son at any time in history. He chose to send His Son into this culture at this time to die this death. That says a lot about crucifixion. In fact, I was studying reluctantly again how brutal crucifixion truly is, and I almost passed out on the couch. I, I don't do good with this kind of thing. And I, I, just, I want to give us just a bit of a glimpse into the suffering of our Savior he would be nailed to the cross as it would lay on the ground. The nails would go through either right here or right here in his wrists. No broken bones, remember that. He would be nailed but stretched, his arms stretched as far as they could pull them. And then nails. And then his feet would be nailed in some way or another so that his knees were at a 45 degree angle. A very awkward angle, not straight like this, but bent like this. And that allowed that 
you could only push up for so long before those muscles would fatigue. And basically what you do then is as the man is, is nailed to the cross, he's then hoisted up and there's a hole in the ground where the, the beam would settle in. So it's tipped up, tipped up, and then at that final tipping point, it would slide in and land. And all of the nerves in your body would just inflame. It wouldn't take long for shoulders, elbows, and wrists to totally dislocate. The stretching and the pulling on that would just be immense. Just pain like you can't even imagine. And then the lungs. That's the issue with crucifixion. Your lungs. You can't breathe unless you push up. You cannot get your lungs to work correctly. And so what happens is you would have this sliding up and down up and down in order to get a breath in and out to speak words. Think, the words of Jesus from the cross required him to be pushing on his nailed feet to get air exhaled out of his lungs and in and then back down as long. This is just horrific. Add to that the condition of his back. Add to that all of the bruising and the beatings, and the crown of thorns on his head. You have a horrific scene. Oh, add to that the fact that they stripped him of his clothes before they put him on the cross. The Romans were experts at this. They were were experts at torture. There were men who would live for days upon days in this position on the side of the road. And there is the Son of God, our Savior, suffering as ordained and planned by God of old. In the middle of this, Jesus speaks these words. It's incredible. It's an astonishing prayer. Think of how utterly overwhelmed your physical body would be with the immensity of pain, just paralyzing pain. Your brain would be spinning. Add to that, friends, what we can't see or even imagine. The outpouring of God's wrath. The spiritual suffering of Christ under the wrath of God. It's not visible. You can't see it, but it's far worse than the physical. Far worse. And Jesus gets these words out as he pushes up. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He prays. He prays words of love and grace and forgiveness to the very people who are mocking him laughing at him in this condition, who have nailed him to this tree, both those Romans and the Jewish leaders and the crowds who taunt and cheer. Father, forgive them. They don't know, they don't know what they've done. If they knew, they would not be doing this. Consider this, the rejection, the hard-heartedness. They're killing God. Now, Does this absolve their guilt? Are they off the hook? No. 
Jesus makes request of the Father to show grace and mercy to his murderers. That's amazing love. Those murderers are accountable for those sins and responsible. And the call and all of his calls for repentance, they echo still. They're responsible for the hardness of their hearts. And if they don't turn from their sins, like some have, maybe Simon here, the centurion, right, really beginning to think, what kind of man prays for us? Never heard this before. Who is this guy? Why would he say that? These words begin to break through hardness of heart. And as God ordains, salvation begins to fall and stir. Jesus said these words at the Last Supper, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And then he does that. He, he lives that. He, he shows that. Not just with action, but with true, heartfelt words of love in the midst of his suffering. It's the most potent display of God's love the world has ever known. And it left people shaken. Some were absolutely amazed and others just hard-hearted. The words just go right past them, right? Hey, let's cast lots, see who gets his, his garments, right? The purple, the, the, the mocking, right? The, the whole thing, the, this is the, the, the king of the Jews, Let, let's, let's divide his garments. Now, in this passage alone, right here, these words, there's like multiple fulfillments of prophecy that Jesus himself couldn't have accomplished. These are things that God has ordained and they're being fulfilled by people who have no desire to fulfill any prophecy. They're doing what God has said would be done. Psalm 22 echoes through all of this. It's just amazing. Written by David, bones out of joint. Listen, they're casting lots and dividing my garments. David writes, messianic psalm of this moment fulfilled the people stood by watching think of how calloused you'd have to be to 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 see three men crucified and you're gambling for their clothes the rulers of the jews they scoffed they mocked him hey he saved others which just pause on that that's an acknowledgement. That's undeniable. Think of how hard-hearted they are. He, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Let's see if he can save himself, right? He healed. He restored. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ, if he is the chosen one, let's see what he can do now. We win, Jesus. We win. What are you going to do? Just mocking and taunting him. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine prophecy and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him that read, this is the king of the Jews. Pilate worked this up. The Jewish leaders wanted it to say, he said he was. Pilate wrote, this is the king of the Jews. And we see that and say, true. True. 
What's interesting is that we learn in the Gospel of Matthew that the, the robbers, the thieves on either side, they mocked him as well, both of them. They both railed at him and mocked him, saying the same words here. Hey, Jesus, right? Why don't you save us? You think you're all something? Do something about this and bring us along. You got nothing over there. But as time passed, 9 a.m. is when he was crucified, 3 p.m. is when he dies. That's six hours of absolute nightmare going on. These verses I titled, From Railing to Reliance. They're railing against him, and then all of a sudden you see this reliance. One of the criminals who were hanged uh, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Right? That's, that's consistent with what we've heard in other Gospels early on. They both were saying. But all of a sudden, one of the thieves grew silent. I think as time was passing, maybe as he heard this prayer, like, who does that? Who does that? He grew silent. And then he rebuked the other thief. So he's throwing words, pushing up on his feet, and tossing these words past Jesus to the other thief. That takes effort and work. He says, hey, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, we deserve this. For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Wow. So all of a sudden we have a turn. We have acknowledgement of sin. We have understanding that it is rightful that he pay the punishment for his sin. Thief on the cross. Listen to these words. And then he turns to Jesus. He turns his head over. And he says, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And now we have words of faith. Think of these, these elements of gospel on display. Ownership of sin. Understanding of right deservedness, of, of, of penalty and reward for that sin. Recompense. And words of faith. Jesus responds with these incredible words. Truly I say to you, not then, but today. Not just when I come in my kingdom, but I'm talking today. Like in a few moments, you will be with me in paradise, in glory, literally in the garden, almost like, like a return to Eden, this place where there is no, no brokenness and heartache and sin. We'll be together. You'll be with me. What a promise. The world has religions that are built upon works. We do not. Let's be really clear on this. The one single most important distinction of what we do and believe regarding salvation that sets us apart from every other world religion is this. We are saved by faith alone apart from works of righteousness. Sola fide was the echo of the Reformation. Martin Luther saw this. Sola fide. It is our faith in Christ, in His work, completed and finished, not in our deservedness or our doing. 
we can't be good enough to earn what we already have in His finished work in Christ. Jesus just says, look to me. Trust me. Believe in me. Right? Repent of your sins. Call it what it is. And turn and look to me. Hmm. Salvation happens in the thief on the cross. Not any opportunity for baptism. Not any opportunity to take the Lord's Supper. Not any opportunity for any other displays or expressions of that faith and obedience. But you know, if He would have had the opportunity, we would have seen that. The root of our salvation is faith alone. The fruit of our salvation is go and shine and obey and delight. Now, separation and salvation. I wanted to put a few things from other Gospels in just so we have a little bit of a sequence of events. I didn't hit every single part, but I want you to see this. It was now about the sixth hour. That's high noon. That's 12 noon. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour when the sunlight's, uh, sun's light failed. Think of this. For three hours from noon to 3 p.m., in broad daylight, it gets dark. Now, we experienced a, a solar eclipse, what was that, three years ago, uh, 2017, when it was pretty epic. All of a sudden, you know, the, the, the sun just kind of gets blocked, and, and it's dark. And you could even feel the temperature go down. Well, this is not that. How long were we out of light for? What, 20 minutes, something like that, 30 minutes? At most, I don't remember. It wasn't long. This is three hours. Okay? So we're not talking eclipse at all. Plus, this is Passover. We have uh, a full moon. And there's no way that you can have a solar eclipse on a full moon. It won't work. So, we're talking light in the darkness. Okay? Think who we're talking about. The Son of God. This is the one through whom the Father created all things. When you think these categories, light and darkness... And you think at the beginning of your Bible, what words come to your mind? Let there be light. And there was. And he separated the light from the darkness. That's words of the Son himself. Jesus, he spoke those words. And then at his birth, what was unique about light and darkness at the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem? Remember the star. It's shown there was something supernatural that took place about the star and the light that shone down. Hmm. Darkness in the daylight. At his death, in broad daylight, it gets dark. This is a supernatural darkness that moved over the region. I, I couldn't help but think of this. You remember the ninth plague? In the Exodus, the ninth plague was darkness. And it wasn't just darkness. It was pitch black. Like you couldn't see anything. There's no light except for probably over the, the people of God where they were. What was the plague that followed darkness? The tenth plague. The death of who? The firstborn son. You see any randomness in this? Do you see the purpose of the 
the exodus, the plagues, everything points to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. This darkness confirms that what took place in the exodus was ultimately about the redemption that would be accomplished in the death of my son, my beloved son, the firstborn. About the ninth hour, Matthew tells us Jesus cried out. Okay, so this is getting close to 3 p.m. Right before he's about to die, he cries out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Maybe the deepest point of his suffering, right there. The darkness, the just final push of the Father's wrath, crushing his Son, such that he cries out the echo of the, of the, of the words of the psalmist, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? Now, has the Father forsaken the Son? No. He's accomplishing all the divine purpose that was set apart and planned of old. But this is that point where Jesus experiences the fullness of, of deep punishment for our sins. He is experiencing the separation that we should experience because of our sins. He feels this. It's like the worst thing he could ever imagine. After this, John tells us that Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, now think of this, there's a moment, not far after these words, there's a moment where Jesus begins to realize through the ministry of the Spirit, all was now finished. The wrath poured out, that cup of God's wrath had been drained. And, and Jesus uh, to fulfill Scripture says, I thirst. Uh, some have suggested that he was sifting through the Old Testament and just double-checking, making sure he had all the prophecies fulfilled. I, I just think this was purpose from the beginning. I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there. They put a sponge, filled it uh, with a hyssop branch, and held it up to his mouth. A fulfillment another of another prophecy there. In my thirst, my tongue sticks to my mouth. It's dry, I'm parched, and they offer me sour wine. That is fulfilled. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Now think how hard those words were to get out. It is finished. The Father's wrath has been absorbed. Jesus did not die as one without peace, friends. He did not die in torment. He died as one who knew my work is complete. The wrath of God has been absorbed. I drank the cup. It is finished. Paid in full. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Friends, that's a fulfillment of words, even there. 
The psalm in 22 ends with David turning from his anguish to trust the Lord, the Almighty. And Jesus finishes his final breath with these words. I commit my spirit. I entrust my spirit to you. And having said this, he breathed his last. What's interesting about this is that he died sooner than the Roman soldiers ever expected him to. They did not expect him to die as quickly. In fact, they were surprised when they came to break the knees of the others to make, make it quicker so they couldn't lift up and get air. They went to break Jesus' knees and they found he was already dead. And so they pierced his side instead just to make sure. He died when he was good and ready. He died on his timeline, at his will. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own will. What a sovereign Savior we have. The moment of his death is recorded in all kinds of gospel uh, moments. And one of the things we see that happens that Luke doesn't give us in chronological order, so I'm going to move it down here because when he gave up his spirit, there was an earthquake. Okay, it's dark. Think of this. You've got to be kind of wondering if you're just watching this take place. It's dark. It's supposed to be light. Now, the earth is shaking. Tombs are breaking open all around the city, outside the city. And the veil in the temple, okay, it's Passover day, friends. Passover. This is a big deal. It's Passover day. The veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place, the holy of holies, is torn in two. And Matthew, Mark, and John all add for clarity from top to bottom. Now, a few things about this veil. This veil was a big deal. It was the thing that separated you from life and death. You don't just saunter into the, the most holy place. If you do, you're dead. In fact, the, the one that would go in there once a year would go in with a rope tied around his leg. In case he was struck dead by God, they could drag him out. You see? Bells on, his, on, on the tassels of his garments so they could still hear if he was moving around and alive in there. To guard a place like this, you don't have just a floating little linen in case a breeze hits it and all of a sudden it opens up and you're like, ah, dead. You can't do that. So they had what many believe was about 60 foot tall curtain that Josephus tells us was roughly four inches thick, woven fabric, heavy duty stuff. You're not going to blow that open at all. And you're certainly not going to stand there and tear it. This is a supernatural act of God. This is a sign from the Father Himself of something massively significant. The veil of the temple is torn from top to bottom, opening up the Holy of Holies at the moment of His death. We read in the book of Hebrews some detail about this. Here's a picture I tried to find that may illustrate how grand a display this was. It, it renders the temple obsolete. No more temple. Done. In 70 AD, Titus made sure. Temple's done. Still no temple. 
Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Let us draw near. He calls us to draw near. Since we have such a confidence to enter the holy places, how do we enter? How could we ever, sinners like you and me, how could we ever consider coming before a holy and righteous God figured in the holy of holies? We can only come by the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way. Listen, that He opened for us through the curtain, that's the one that was torn, that is through his flesh. Wow. So the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus had his body placed on the cross and his body, as it were, was, was torn so that we could enter into the holy place through his work. We can be brought in. It's the only way. It's why in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the holy place. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that is through my sacrifice that must be for you, for your sins. Friends, we've been separated from God because of our sin. We've been redeemed by God, through Christ, in His blood. It's the only way for salvation. It's the only way that sinners can truly be forgiven. Hmm. Now, wrapping up here, some final verses. This, these are amazing little details. When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God. Okay, Roman centurion praising God and saying, certainly this man was innocent. Or, in another gospel, surely this man was the Son of God. This dude was who he claimed to be. A man who's crucified loads of people. And he witnesses this go down. He hears these words and he says, I believe. All the crowds that assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. What have we done? This is terrible. And all the acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Hmm. History was divided. What an amazing thing took place. Jesus changed Old Covenant, New Covenant. Old Testament, New Testament. The law and the hammer that shows our guilt and the grace and love in Christ that offers us forgiveness for sinners. Hmm. So our response this morning. I just want to think about the cost of the cross. You know, it's amazing how we can be forgiven freely. We can be forgiven freely. We, we, we experience, like the thief on the cross, right? I, I don't have to work. There, I, I'm, I'm not paying anything. The, the, the freedom that comes my way of forgiveness, it, it's, it's, it's free for me. But it's costly to God. The cost of the cross was immense. It's, it's beyond our wildest imagination. 
How did he deal with our trespasses? Listen to the grace in, the, in, in these verses. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, let's, let's disagree. Dead means dead. Not mostly dead, like the princess bride. Right? Dead. If we were in the pool, spiritually speaking, we're not swimming for the shore or for the edge of the pool. We're at the bottom of the pool. Lifeless, dead, corpse, nothing there. That's us, apart from the work of the gospel. That's how we're born, spiritually. Dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, God, God the Father, okay, I I added in so we can see Trinitarian function here. God the Father made us alive together with Him, with Jesus, having forgiven us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This, the Father, set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now think of how this goes down. He has a law. He is holy. He is righteous. We have transgressed that law. What do we deserve? We deserve death. And in our place, the Father says, no. I will take what you deserve in all of this wrath and I will nail it to the cross through the hands of my Son. All the pain All the heartache, all the struggle, every time the hammer hit the nail, another one of my sins is washed. He took the nails. And then he offers a free gift of salvation. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the gift of grace that we have tasted through the good news of the Gospel. What a free gift it is, and yet all so costly. How could You forgive us of our sins and still be just? Look at what You've done. You nailed our sins and our transgressions and the punishment all placed upon Jesus whom you made sin, who knew no sin, that we might become His righteousness. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. We give praise to you for this finished work, the fulfillment of of all of the, the payment that's required for our forgiveness. Jesus, thank you for taking and paying such a high price in our place. Lord, I pray even now that you would stir in hearts. If there are any here that don't, trust Jesus as Savior and Lord, that haven't turned and acknowledged their sin, and then look to Jesus as Savior to cling to Him and His finished work, I pray today that You would open their eyes and save them, stir in their hearts to repentance and trust in You. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.